Good. So welcome everyone to Drisha's fall program. And this is the second out of a four-part series on living and dying with dignity, themes in halacha and medical decision-making with Rabbi Daniel Reifman. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Rabbi Reifman. Okay. Um, when we last left our heroes, we were talking about who was our hero of the story of uh, Rabbi Huda Hanasi's maid. Uh, and we suggested that it was in fact her who is the hero of the story and therefore the character whose behavior becomes a paradigm for further legal decision-making. Let me say that again. When you have a story that's situated within a legal context, there's a natural question that you have to ask, which is how do I translate from the language of a story to the language of law? What's the difference between the language of story and the language of law? We, we talked about this a little bit, so but, but let me just uh, let me just see how much you you got and 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 if you have uh, yeah uh, and then and then we can and then we can push forward. What's the difference between uh, the 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 when I say the the language of a story? I mean, what do I mean? This technical term, the poetics of a story, the way that. The author of a story uses the devices of text uh, of drama, could be drama, uh, to, to create a sense of a story, of a plot, of a narrative, of character. All that is very different than a legal context in which a, 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 a judge uh, creates a sense of law instead of drama, in, in which a uh, legislator crafts a legal text as opposed to a story. What's the key difference then between um, the language of a story or the, 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 the discourse of story and the discourse of law? I mean, there are a lot of differences, but when we think about translating from one to the other, what do we have to do? Yeah, Michelle, go ahead. You need to make it into a code. You, you need to make it a code. And what's the difference between the tone of a story and the tone of a code? Well, a story is a narrative that has a uh, person, it's lodges in a personal interaction. It has the feeling connotation. There is a uh, once upon a time and then it ends. So it's limited to that. It, it's seemingly limited to that interaction. What okay, there, there's a very limited time frame. The story is about Rabbi Hudanasi, his maid, the rabbis. It takes place at one point in time, at one historical context. And who's to say it has anything to do with our lives? You have to turn into a code which necessitates on the one hand extrapolating and abstracting and generalizing from her behavior to anybody's behavior. That's one of the tricky things that we're going to get to. How do you do that extrapolation? You can do it, of course, in many different ways. What is it about her behavior that is important that we, what's the takeaway from the story, right? That, that's, that's the process of translating from the language of story to the language of law. In a story also, you have multiple registers. We talked about the fact there are multiple characters in the story. And therefore in the story, you could pick any one character and say, oh, it's their behavior is the one that I find to be, uh, to, to, be, uh, uh, to be upstanding, to be praiseworthy, to be something that I wanna turn into normative behavior, right? You could have picked anybody. You could pick the rabbis, you could have picked uh, the angels, but we picked her, we picked Rabbi Huda Nasi's maid as the person whose behavior is most representative of the behavior that we want to become normative, okay? That's as far as the story went. We also talked about the different values that are in play both in the story 
and more broadly in terms of these life and death uh, or end of life issues. And we listed four of them. And I'm just gonna use the whiteboard again because I wanna actually kind of rearrange them for today's class. And hopefully this will be the final way that we present them. Let's share a whiteboard and let's do the following. Again, we talked about four different elements or four different values that come up in these sorts of end of, uh, end of life care discussions. Um, and I'm hoping this will cooperate with me this time. There we go. Okay. Uh, we said we have in one corner suffering. We said we had, so let's put suffering, suffering over here. I think suffering should be the first thing we put on the board. Um, the first thing we put on the board should be life. Then we have suffering, which we said really breaks down into two separate issues. Suffering can be mental anguish, or it can be physical, physical pain. The two may, of course, be related. Uh, the two may be, uh, in some cases, inseparable, but not always, because we talked, for example, about cases where um, pain can be given a positive value, right? A woman uh, having a natural childbirth, a martyr being tortured to their death, which they infuse with meaning because now they know they're going to go to heaven, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay. Um, we have life, we have suffering and two uh, categories of suffering. Um, we have, colors are doing funny things for me here. Um, we said we had agency. Oh, yeah. And again, agency meant two different things or could mean two different things. Agency could mean either could mean either um how did we put it we put choice or what was the other one that we had action i think yes i mean sometimes agency is a matter of doing something and sometimes agency is the ability to choose again those often come hand in hand right you the, when you act you presumably act because you have a choice to make, but not always. Sometimes a person acts uh, not of their free will. Sometimes a person acts, uh, they, 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 uh, they do something accidentally. Um, the fact that they have acted sometimes means they're responsible even if it's accidental, right? The legal system often holds somebody responsible even if something is accidental, even if they didn't mean to do what they just did. Choice, on the other hand, is something deliberate, something that you have the ability to choose. You might choose not to do something. Your choice might be inaction or withdrawal, which of course we're going to talk a great deal about. But 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 those are so these are these are two elements of agency that again sometimes or often overlap, but not always. And the last category that we had um, was uh, dignity, which of course is. Uh, the title of the class and what we said last time about dignity is the dignity is an awfully slippery, did we say this? I think we said this, the dignity is an often awfully slippery uh, subject. Did, did, did we talk about this? Did, did we? Okay, let me just say it again quickly. Um, when we talk about dignity, um, we didn't talk about it. 
Um, dignity is actually quite hard to define. And we did, yeah, I think we did do a little of this. What is dignity? Um, we said dignity is minimally, um, has to do with one sense of self. Dignity has to do with the way that we perceive ourselves and it may be equally important, maybe sometimes even more important, the way other people perceive us or the way that we are perceived relative to other people in our society. Okay, dignity is often a matter of social status. It's a matter of, um, of, 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 of a certain comportment or a certain degree of recognition by other people. What we also said is that dignity is, it, it, whatever dignity is, it's important to distinguishing dignity and life, which is why I put them here in opposite corners of the square. Because when we talk about dignity as a value in medical ethics decision-making, um, we, we almost always mean dignity as, as, as opposed to something that is life. That's not to say that dignity and life don't go together or they can't go together, but it's saying that when we bring dignity into the discussion, it's as, a, it's as an additional and sometimes countervailing factor to life. Somebody might decide that, and, and of course, this is our life is important to us, and therefore, um, and, and, and therefore, when you acknowledge somebody's life, you are giving them dignity. But typically, when we talk about dignity, we're talking about some aspect of the person's self that goes beyond the basic fact of their being alive. Okay. So, if you notice, just the way that I've arranged them in this square, I don't want to make too much of it, but agency and dignity are both things that are, um, sorry, life and agency are both things that are objective in the sense that um, these are things that are, I don't want to put it that way. Let, let, me, let me not make too much of the square. Let's, let's see how the square works for us in, in terms of the way that we're analyzing uh, the, the sources that we're talking about. Um, what we said last time is, hold on a second. I don't mean to be too obsessive about the color. Those of you who have who've been with me for a while know that I'm a very visual teacher and get very particular about colors. For some reason, decided to color my word life blue. There we go. Now it's all in orange, which is, means nothing other than it's all in the same color. When I want to use different color, I will. Let's use a different color right now because the topic of this sugya, of this kind of um, halachic issue that we're following through um, is, is different than what we're going to talk about next class. Okay, so let's do this again in a different color. The, the issue that we're talking about now is what care must we provide to a terminally ill patient? Terminally ill is not quite the right word. In fact, I had a better word right here to a dying patient. Let's put it that way. That's the question on the board. Um, and we're going to talk about that in light of the different values that we have here. Okay. Um, what we're going to talk about next class, I hope we'll get to finish this topic this class and we'll get to the other topic by next class, um, is what kind of care are we allowed to provide to a dying patient? And to what extent does the patient get to choose the kind of care that they want? I know that sounds like the same issue, but we're going to see that it's a subtly different issue and involves some different discussions. Uh, and some different sources. Um, but this is the issue that we want to address right now. What kind of care do we as third parties or second parties have a responsibility to provide to a dying patient? 
Okay. And, and, and locked into this, of course, or, or intertwined with this, of course, is the question of um, what kind of care can we not provide if we so choose. Where we ended our discussion last time after we discussed these four different elements was, um, let me share the sources with you now. Uh, you see the sources? Okay. We talked about the passage of the Talmud in Nidarim and Rabbinism of Gerona's commentary on that. We said that it's the Talmud says, um, anyone who doesn't visit the sick neither prays that he should, sorry, anyone who visits the sick causes him to live and anyone who does not visit the sick causes him to die. Talmud was a little uh, stymied by this and said, what do you mean? If I don't visit him, I'm, I'm not doing anything. Why am I causing the patient to die? Rather, it said, anyone who doesn't visit the sick neither prays that he should live nor prays that he should die. Now, that's a kind of strange reinterpretation of that statement, of Ravdimi's statement at the beginning of this passage. It implies that there are, in fact, three plausible things that you could do to a dying patient. You could pray that they could live, you could pray that they could die, or you could do nothing. What the Talmud implies is that doing nothing is the worst thing of all. In other words, when we look at these passages, what we see, again, in terms of, uh, in terms of this square, is that agency is a critical component. And we think about, um, when we think about the care that we have to provide to a dying patient, one of the critical things that we have to do um, is something. We have to actually choose what's best for them. We have to choose it and we have to act. And therefore agency is the, is the concept that is coming into play here. It's saying, this is an obligation that you have. That in of itself is, is an important statement to make. And in fact, this is an area where halacha is very much in line with, uh, with modern medical ethics. Modern medical ethics assumes that healthcare providers have an obligation to their patients. In other words, it's not simply that the patient is there and we can choose to treat them or not treat them. Once they are in our care, once they're in a context where we, we all have uh, you know, relationships with one another and responsibilities to one another, it's the healthcare provider's responsibility to provide the best possible care for that patient. I know that sounds self-evident, but as we go forward, we're gonna see that it's not there are contexts where you could have said, no, you know, they're on their own, or I don't have a responsibility to deal with X or Y or Z, or even where the responsibility of the healthcare provider, of the doctor, of the nurse, of the family member, dictates a certain kind of course of action as opposed to another, okay? So again, Halakha and modern medical ethics both presume an ethic of responsibility toward the patients, okay? Whether there's another component here, we're gonna to have to address, but that's at least the beginning point of our analysis. Okay, um, back to the sources. What I wanna do now is move from these sources, which as I said last time, are really, the natural beginning to the sukiya, the beginning in the sense that everybody who addresses this halachic issue uh, begins with these sources, okay? It's not that halacha gives us a kind of linear path through the Talmud. The Talmud is 
if you're familiar with the Talmud, it's a, a, a famously disorganized document, stream of consciousness, sources coming from here and there. In order to create a sense of unity, you have to be a master of many, uh, of, 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 of just simply a vast array of texts. But anybody who addresses this issue begins with these sources. This is kind of an agreed upon starting point. We're gonna shift now to the Middle Ages and to a different set of sources that address a different uh, kind of question more directly the kind of question that we put on the board, which is what kind of care are we, are we required to provide to a, uh, to, to a dying patient? Somebody want to read? Okay, go ahead. Uh, where should I read? From Sefer Hasidim. Okay, Sefer Hasidim. One may not prevent a person from dying more quickly. For example, if there was a, a gases? Goses. Oh, Goses in Hebrew, of course. Okay. Uh, was, whereas there was a Goses close to the house of a woodchopper and his soul cannot depart, we remove the woodchopper from there. And one may not place salt on his tongue so that he doesn't die. And if a person were a Goses saying that he cannot die until they place him in a different location, why one may not move him from there. Okay. Um, the truth is the translation, I'm wondering how this got translated this way. One may not, I want to trains this actually, cause a person, so if you look at the Hebrew, there's a double negative in the Hebrew. One not cause, prevent a person, oh, I see, what, hold on. One may not, here, here's the here's the problem. One may not prevent a person from not dying more quickly. That's how it should read. Okay. In other words, you can prevent a person from dying. Okay. Um, for example, okay. Here are the examples. If a person has a gosses, what's a gosses? Somebody who's in the last throes of life. Okay. Classically, this was defined. Uh, we just had a power outage again, but uh, I will uh, see what I can do here in terms of. We can still hear you perfectly. You can. Can you still hear me? Uh, okay. We can hear you perfectly. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Um, if somebody's a gosses, it means that they are. Um, sorry, hold on a second. Um, if somebody is a gosses, it means they're in the last throes of life, meaning. Um, Classically, this was defined as somebody who's in the last three days of life, uh, whether it means the same thing. Nowadays, of course, the, the, the time frame of end-of-life care is very different now than it was then, um, but that's classically how it was defined. If somebody's close to the house of a woodchopper and his soul cannot depart, why can his soul not depart? Because he, he hears the sound of the woodchopper and somehow the stimulus of hearing the sound um, is preventing him from dying. Whether that's true or not, medically, psychologically, I don't know. Uh, one time I taught this and we were talking about the sound of a woodchopper and suddenly suddenly, somebody outside started a leaf blow. If you had a leaf blower going on in the background, I could imagine that would prevent you from doing anything, even thinking straight, much less dying. Um, we removed the woodchopper from there. What's the point? We're obligated to create a situation where nature can take its course, okay? That's in terms of an obligation. You have to actually take away that stimulus to allow the person to die. And one may not place salt on his tongue so that he doesn't die. Similarly, you not, cannot create a stimulus for the person to, to prevent the person from dying. 
However, if a person were to say saying he cannot die until they place him in a different location, one may not move him from there. Okay? What's the point here? You can't encourage dying. You can just remove you, obstacles to prevent it. Thank you. You can't encourage dying, but you have to remove. You have to remove, and you kind of create obstacles from for uh, for death. Okay. Um, that's uh, okay. You still see my screen? Yes. You still see the sources? Okay. Um, that seems to be the point of the Sefer Hasidim. Who is the Sefer Hasidim, by the way? Sefer Hasidim is uh, Rabbi Yehuda uh, ben Shmuel of Regensburg, again, uh, a, a medieval German scholar from uh, the medieval German Hasidic movements. Okay, no relation to the modern Hasidic movement. Certain overlap in terms of philosophy, uh, in terms of having a kind of ethic of asceticism and ethic of uh, piety. Um, but, but, but a different movement. This book is therefore a, a compilation of more of customs than of laws from the medieval German pietist movement, the medieval German Hasidic movement. This becomes an important source because if we go forward, we're going to see that it does not necessarily line up perfectly with other things that we know about the end of life care. Let's shift now to Spain, to Northern Christian Spain, uh, and the Ramban who quotes an earlier rabbinic passage about about the same state of being, but a different set of halachot. Okay, uh, let me read this. I'm just going to read to to save time in case uh, in case the paragraph said again and we have to stop. <laughs> it is taught in Eval Rabbati. Eval Rabbati is the rabbinic the one of the rabbinic texts that addresses the laws of mourning and the laws of end of life care. A gosais is considered to be alive for all matters. One may not bind his cheeks, anoint or wash him, or stop up his orifices, nor may one remove a pillow from underneath him. Nor may one close his eyes until his soul departs. And anyone who closes his eyes as his soul is departing is considered to be a murderer. What's the basic idea here? All of these things are things that we don't generally associate with end-of-life care. What are they? Any of these kinds of activities? Um, um, preparation. For death, I mean, for burial. Preparation for death, yeah. In fact, some of these things are things that you would do for a dead person, okay? In other words, Eva Rabati is stressing that a gosses is not dead. The life force that they have is still very much life, and therefore you're not allowed to treat this person as if they're dead or start making preparations for their death. In fact, the way this is traditionally understood, again, one could quibble with the details here, the way this is traditionally understood is that when a person is in the last throes of their life, you interact with them as minimally as possible to the point of not even touching them when not, it's not medically necessary to prevent the person possibly causing them to die. In other words, here, there's an ethic of withdrawal. Here, there's an ethic of not wanting to intervene lest we hasten their death. So we have a responsibility on the one hand to let nature take its course. On the other hand, a responsibility not to hasten a person's death because of the, 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 the infinite value of a human life, okay? Here are the two classical sources that are gonna be the basis of the next few sources that we're gonna see. Because now the question is how active or passive can you be? How active can you be and how passive do you have to be in terms of treating uh, somebody who is in the last throes of life? Um, these sources are brought together uh, a few hundred years later. This is how halachic sugya works, right? Somebody says something in Germany, says something in Spain, and now we have uh, a later early modern scholar, late medieval early modern scholar around the time of the Renaissance in Italy, 
right? So you have kind of this, uh, this, this, uh, the way, uh, the way a friend of mine put it, it, this, this reads like the notes of an intergenerational meeting, right? Where one person is one thing, the other person is everything, and they come together and says, okay, based on what you're saying, what you're saying, here's what I get. Here we have Rabbi Yeshua Boaz, uh, famous for another, a number of other works that he's written, including important indices to, on the page of the Talmud, if you're learning Dafyomi, you're using some of his, uh, some of his helpful uh, footnotes on the side. Um, he says as follows. From here it would seem, okay, from this passage in the Ramban, he's commenting on this, he says, from here it would seem that one should prohibit that which some people do when the patient is a gosace, to remove the pillow from underneath him, saying that there are feathers which prevent the soul from departing, okay? He says there are people who would say, if there are certain kinds of bird feathers in the pillow, that's preventing the person from departing. The Shiltagi Barim says, Rabbi Yeshua Boaz says, you know what? You shouldn't remove the pillow because when you're removing the pillow, what are you doing? You're causing the person to die, right? You're actively hastening their death. And he says, and several times I've strongly objected to this to no avail. People keep doing it. Uh, a, a statement of uh, rabbinic impotence where you keep saying, no, 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 you really shouldn't be doing this and nobody pays any attention. Uh, when when we, we, we should say, and we'll probably say again, that uh, in these kinds of areas, there's a lot of, there's, there's an enormous force to uh, cultural factors that come into play. Clearly this was a very strong cultural uh, norm that people had of removing this pillow or assuming this pillow was somehow preventing the person from dying and they wanted to remove it. Uh, Rabbi Yeshua Boaz says, you can't do that because by doing so you're hastening his death. After a few years, I found support for my position in the Sefer Chassidim number 723. And if we're one were a Gosais saying they cannot die until they place him in a different location, one may not move him from there. Okay, he says, look, what's this issue of the pillow comparable to? This issue of the pillow is comparable to what the Sefer Chassidim said about not moving him to another location. Just like you can't move him to another location. If he says that this room is too hot, I can't die, I, I feel, or this room is too cold, um, you can't move them to a different location um, because that would be actively hastening their death. So to here, he says, that would be the same as, the same would be true from by removing this pillow uh, with, with this kind of strange metaphysical quality of bird feathers uh, keeping them alive. In truth, the Sefer Chastim's words require analysis. For at first he wrote, therefore was a Gosses close to the house of a woodchopper and his soul cannot depart. We remove the woodchopper from there, which seems to be the opposite of what he wrote afterwards, okay? In other words, now, Rabbi Yoshua Boaz is saying, wait a second, it's not clear what exactly distinction is between the two things, the two categories of actions that the Sefer Chastim mentioned. On the one hand, he says, you can, remove, you have to remove the woodchopper and not place salt on his tongue. On the other hand, you're not allowed to move him to a different location, right? Well, some things he says you have to do, right, to, to let nature take its course. And in the other case, he says, no, doing that would hasten the person's death. But, but what's the difference between these? And if I have a third kind of case, like removing this pillow with bird feathers, is it like the woodchopper or is it like moving them to a different place? You following me so far? I realize these are strange assumptions, right? The woodchopper, the salt on the tongue, that kind of makes sense. Maybe moving to a different location. The bird feathers is kind of weird, right? 
we don't really have a sense of what kinds of assumptions they're making about um, about why this worked or, or, or whether this was physical or metaphysical or psychological. We, we don't really understand. What we have here structurally though, is a classic kind of legal analysis. I know that case A is, or, or, or action A is permitted or maybe even required. Action B is prohibited. And now I have action C. Is action C more similar to action A or action B? This is the basic structure of any legal question, right? You, you can use that to act, analyze any legal question. You can open this, you know, a, a Supreme Court decision from US Supreme Court. And invariably, somewhere buried in the text is an analysis that says, well, we have precedent A and precedent B, and is this case C more similar to A or B, right? Now, obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic structure of any kind of legal question. And that's what he's asking here. What is the difference and how should I know whether the pillow with the bird feathers is more similar to A or B? However, one can resolve this by saying it's forbidden to do something that prevents a ghost haze from dying sooner, such as chopping wood to prevent the soul from leaving or putting salt on his tongue so he doesn't die quickly. All of these are forbidden, as is implied there. And in such cases, when we remove the cause of his not dying, but it is forbidden to do something that will cause him to die sooner, and therefore it's forbidden to move him from his place to a different location so that his soul departs. And therefore it is also forbidden to place the keys of the synagogue under the head of the Gosses, for he should die quickly, for this too hastens his death. Now he brings another case. Again, strange. There was a custom, apparently, again, the force of custom, of putting the keys of the synagogue under the person's pillows that they die faster. He says, you can't do that either because that hastens their death. Again, it's not simply a matter of action versus inaction. What's the distinction he's making here? It's preventing nature from taking its course to causing them to die sooner. Okay, so that's the distinction that he makes explicit even though the Sefer al-Hasidim didn't say it quite so clearly. According to this, if there's something that prevents his soul from departing, there's no prohibition to remove it. For in doing so, one is not snuffing out the candle or doing an act at all. So in the end, he concludes, you actually can remove the pillow with the bird feathers because the pillow with the bird feathers ostensibly is preventing the person from dying. Doing soon so you're not actively causing them to die. But it seems that placing something on the gosses or moving him from place to place so that his soul departs more quickly is prohibited for one is, for one is, should be, is snuffing out the candle, okay? That's his conclusion. Okay, you with me so far? Um, how would we sum this up? How would we articulate the distinction that he makes between these two sets of things, one of which you cannot do and have to remove if it's there, like the sound of the wood chopper or the salt on the tongue, versus those things that you can't do, like moving them to a different location or placing the keys under their pillow. Oh, one thing. Um, a friend of mine, uh, uh, where is this? I was gonna show you this book anyway, so I might as well show it to you now. Here it is. Uh, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Rabbi Jason Wiener wrote this book, um, A Jewish Guide to Practical Medical Decision-Making. Uh, excellent, excellent guide. He's really very thorough. Um, and, and he's a chaplain in uh, Cedar sinai Hospital in, um, in Los Angeles, and he, relays some, some interesting stories from his days as a chaplain, including one where they take 
um, that he, he said he's seen this multiple times where they take a chicken and put it on the stomach of a person who's dying so that they die faster. And the first time he heard about this, he was, he just, he could not understand what it was. And then he heard about it again. He's like, oh, I see this is a thing. So lest we think that in the modern era, we are so much more advanced and less superstitious, uh, not so. Um, how would you how would you articulate the distinction between these two different kinds of actions, one of which we can't do and one of which we can or have to? It's important to articulate it because of course, what are we interested in? What, 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 what are we gonna substitute for putting the keys under the under the pillow or 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 stopping the wood chopper? Pain medication. Uh, pain medication. An end of like or nutrition, um, intravenous nutrition, antibiotics, dialysis, ventilation. Can a, do we if a person is having trouble breathing, do we have to intubate them? If a person um, doesn't want to be on a ventilator, can we extubate them? These are complicated questions that that seem to fit into these two categories, but we have to articulate the difference between them in order to be able to apply it. What's the difference then between these two categories? How would you articulate it? What kind of terminology would you use to put on each of these categories? I would say we have, we're ob that we have to remove obstacles to letting nature take its course, but we can't do anything that would cause that to happen quicker. Okay. What counts as an obstacle? You, you, that, that's an interesting word. You use the word obstacle. What counts as an obstacle? I would, if I'm thinking really practical, because I'm doing a healthcare proxy right now with my husband, we're talking right. about um, machines. <laughs> okay, a machine strikes you as an obstacle. No, they don't have machines here, but why, why does machine, what, what about a machine suggests an obstacle to letting nature take its course? A machine is by nature something artificial, right? A machine is something that is other, it's not human, right? It's not natural. Think about taking, letting nature take its course. Well, a machine is not part of nature. A machine is something artificial that we have invented, that we have put into the picture actively. So one way of framing this, actually a very common way of framing this distinction is to say that something is natural versus artificial. If I introduce something artificial into the system that's preventing them from dying, that's an obstacle to them from dying, then I have to remove it or I'm able to remove it. If there's something artificial that it would hasten their death, then I can't do that, okay? In other words, it's removing the artificial things and letting nature take its course. That distinction between natural and artificial seems to be, or is, is commonly used to frame these two categories. We might come up with another distinction, but that's a working distinction for now. Okay. Um, I don't want to, the, the, I put the Shulchan Aruch here. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch again is the kind of definitive code of Jewish law at the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and this is what we look to when we need kind of a decisive ruling among all of these different voices during the Middle Ages. But I'm going to jump ahead now to the 20th century, okay, because this is where, uh, this is the time period when these kinds of issues come to the fore. Um, 20th century, of course, is when you have the, 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 the first 
significant kind of mechanical or artificial uh, um, uh, uh, end of life care, beginning with the invention of the ventilator, uh, actually the beginning of the 20th century, earlier than most people think. Um, and since then, of course, we've developed many other kinds of technologies, many other kinds of medicines, many other kinds of treatments uh, that enable us to sustain life far longer than we would have been able in an earlier era. Okay. Um, we're now in the 1970s, or late 60s, early 70s. Uh, the Igrod Moshe, or Moshe Feinstein, was the preeminent posek, the preeminent halachic authority um, in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. He died in 1986. Um, he's somebody who was respected really across the spectrum of Judaism, certainly within the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox community. Um, but somebody who spoke with a great deal of authority even, uh, even to uh, the conservative and reform movements. Uh, the, I, should, I should mention that all the 20th century authorities on, this, on, on the source sheet are orthodox um, for the simple reason right now that there's not a lot of difference between the orthodox and conservative approaches to this issue with one, with one not huge caveat, which hopefully we'll address, but, but probably not today. Um, and eventually we will talk maybe a little more about the relationship between the Orthodox and conservative movements on the one hand um, and medical ethics and the reform and reconstructionist communities on the other hand. Um, Ramosha Feinstein addresses this issue of end of life care in, a, in, in an interesting context in his first responsum on the issue of heart transplants. Um, heart transplants of course became a viable medical procedure at the end of the 1960s they were then basically put in, there was basically a moratorium on them for throughout the 1970s until they developed anti-rejection drugs that enabled the heart to be, to not be rejected in the recipient. But here he's addressing the question of the donor. And the question of course of, first of all, when is the donor actually dead such that we can remove their internal organs or harvest their internal organs for transplant. But if also, and, and this is the issue he's addressing here, um, what were we allowed to do to sustain a patient until uh, they, they were ready to have their organs harvested? In other words, if we see somebody as a potential organ donor, um, but we assess that they're still alive, they're not dead yet, even by a standard of brain death, um, what kind of treatment can we provide? What kind of treatment are we obligated to provide for them um, while we are waiting for them, while we are waiting for nature to take its course? So here he goes. On the practice of artificially sustaining potential organ donors past the point when they would normally live until the transplant is ready to be performed. Okay, you might want to keep the patient alive for longer than, than, than would otherwise happen because you want them to be, you want the transplant to happen at a certain point in time. What's the key issue here? Why, why do you need to time it so carefully? In order for the transplant to be successful, there has to the organs have to be very fresh. Not to not to to, to be a little crass about it. Um, they're, they're, the, as soon as the patient dies, uh, there's a very very small window of time, really a matter of minutes, uh, before the organs start to decay uh, beyond the point where they'll be viable uh, in 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 the in the transplant recipient. Um, and therefore, the transplant does have to be timed very carefully. If you have a patient who's a potential transplant donor. Um, and you want to keep them alive for longer than normal. Are you allowed to do that? That's his question right here. In my humble opinion, he says, it seems that it's not. It seems that since it's not being done to heal him, but rather only to lengthen his life in the short term, 
If the short-term life that he lives by artificial means will be painful, then it's forbidden, okay? So there's an obvious value to having the, the transplant be viable because of course, saving the recipient's life is, is, is a, really, uh, a really important issue. You wanna be able to save their life. And therefore you say, okay, well, in order to save their life, I will make a small sacrifice and extend this person's life beyond what would normally happen. Says Rav Moshe Feinstein, that's not okay. You're not allowed to artificially lengthen their life. Why or in what scenario? If they're in pain. If by sustaining them past the point they would normally live, you are extending their suffering, then you're not allowed to do that, even at the cost of not being able to perform the transplant and saving the recipient's life. For it seems that this is the reason that one may remove something that's preventing the soul from departing when it doesn't involve an affirmative act to prevent suffering. In other words, why when a person can't die because of the woodchopper, or why when a person can't die because there's salt on their tongue, why are you allowed to, or actually you have to remove those things? Because they're suffering. Now, how did he put suffering into the picture? Where did we see suffering in this whole discussion? We saw suffering way back when, when we read this story about Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Some, sorry, somebody asked in the chat column, what's the relationship between um, Rabbi Yehuda ben, uh, Samuel of Regensburg and Rabbi Yehuda the Prince? Rabbi Yehuda the Prince is in the rabbinic period, okay? Uh, the, the second century CE. Um, and, and so he and uh, Rabbi Yehuda of Regensburg is about a thousand years later, okay? No relation at all other than with being Jewish and having the name Judah. Um, we Not saw the issue of suffering here, but, but the, the, the Sefer Hasidim and the Ramban did not mention suffering at all. Where's Sir Moshe Feinstein suddenly schlepping in the concept of suffering as, as a way of adjudicating whether or not you can take action? So he says that must have been the reason. He says that must be the subtext. He's reading, he says, I'm reading between the lines. Well, that's could say that, but you could also challenge him, right? Who gives you the right to read between the lines and say that's what it must mean? He explains as follows. For it were permit, for if it were permissible to lengthen an individual's life artificially, even when he is suffering, why would it be permissible to remove something that's preventing the soul from departing? On the contrary, one would have to bring things that prevent the soul from departing so that he would live a bit longer. In other words, he says, look, Life is a really important value in Judaism. In general, what do we assume? You do whatever you can to lengthen a person's life. How do we know that for sure? From a halachic perspective, what tells us the value of a life in, in, in Judaism? Or where does halacha convey to us the value of a life? You can violate anything like Shabbos in order to prolong life. You, you can violate Shabbat in order to save somebody's life. Not only can you, you must. Not only must you, but the Rambam, Maimonides says, when you when there's somebody in a situation where their life is being threatened, we do not de we do not delegate the the violation of Shabbat to uh, to to uh, he says women and slaves, um, to to the lower caste of society. We have it done by the most prominent member of society to show how important it is. And basically, aside from the big three prohibitions, idolatry, incest, and of course murder. Um, anything is trumped by saving a life. That tells you the value of life in Judaism. Why wouldn't you do whatever you can to lengthen somebody's life? 
Scissor must refine saying there must be some countervailing factor. That's the only reason that you will be that you have to let nature take its course and you should do things to allow nature to take their course by removing artificial obstacles to their diet. And therefore, he says that that only the only countervailing factor that could be there is suffering. So if we go back to our whiteboard, effectively, what does Ramosha Feinstein do? He says, look at this whiteboard. When, what care must be provided to a dying patient? He draws a line between life and suffering. And he says as follows, on this side of the line is in order to, uh, it, when, when you think about uh, allowing, uh, doing things for somebody's life, what do you have? Uh, let's not let me do this, hold on a second. Or actually, before we put in any text, um, he says, it's not letting me put in text anyway, so we might as well just draw the line here. Why do I, what do I, what do I mean by this line? Um, life and suffering are the two countervailing values that, that, that inform what care we must provide to a dying patient. There are some kinds of care that we have to provide or some kinds of care that we may not remove because they are sustaining a person's life. There are other kinds of care that we must remove and cannot provide because they're prolonging somebody's suffering. And here by suffering, what does he likely mean? which if we had to pick one category of suffering, what would we be talking about here? It's physical. Physical, physical why physical? Why would you say it's physical pain? The, the kind of patient we're talking about is probably not conscious, okay? If we're talking about a candidate for uh, to be a, 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 an organ donor, probably the person is not conscious. In fact, usually why is somebody an organ donor? because they've sustained some sort of serious head injury that, 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 that puts them in a situation where, they're, where they're, 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 uh, they're, they're dying, but their body is still intact. That's the most common scenario in which somebody is a potential organ donor. And therefore they're almost certainly not conscious, okay? So it's physical pain versus life. These are the two countervailing factors that inform this. And this is the line between them. We're gonna have to decide what goes on this side of the line and what goes on that side of the line, okay? Okay, let's go back to the source sheet. Because I know that at least somebody, one of you is thinking, well, wait a second, if they're not conscious, then how could they be suffering? And regarding that which doctors say, that he no longer feels pain, again, because the person is probably not conscious, one should not believe them, for it's possible they aren't capable of knowing this. Here's something that comes up every so often when you learn uh, the halakha relating to medical care. Doctors and rabbis sometimes go head to head in terms of who is the most authoritative. And when you read rabbinic sources or halachic sources, sometimes they get a little snarky, right? They say, do those doctors really know what they're talking about? Really, come on. Um, in this very responsum, Rav Moshe Feinstein actually levels some very serious accusations against the doctors who performed the first heart -to -heart human heart-to-heart -heart transplant in South Africa. He accuses them of being liars, he accuses them of being murderers on and on and on. Um, and actually he ends up kind of being right because they did actually uh, not testify honestly as to how they, they harvested the heart that they took from, from Denise Darval, who was the first heart donor. Um, so again, the rabbis are not always wrong, but, but, um, but they do get a little snarky even when they're not right. Um, well, is he right? Do we know whether a patient who's conscious is feeling pain or not? How do we know? 
nowadays you might be able to do an MRI and actually see what's going on in their brain and whether they're feeling pain. Um, but one of the things they've discovered in the past, say, 20 years in terms of studying uh, people who are in persistent vegetative states, people who are in comatose states, um, is there's actually a lot more going on in the brain than we think. Uh, people who have woken up from comas, for example, um, can recognize voices of people that they did not know before they were comatose. So there's clearly some sort of, 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 of cognition going on, some sort of sensory perception going on, uh, even though the person is not conscious. Um, we simply don't know what's going on in the brain and whether this person is feeling pain. And therefore, this is the important point, Ramosha Feinstein says you cannot assume that the person is not in pain. The assumption of pain or the question as to whether the person might be in pain is, is, is supersedes the desire to keep them alive for the value of their organs, okay? That gives you a sense of how much he values suffering or how much he sees suffering as a countervailing force to life to the point where you're really not allowed to keep them alive for longer than that they naturally would because you're extending their suffering, okay? This is the most, um, the, the, the most, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, extreme is not the right word, uh, the, the most insistent articulation of the value that suffering has in these kinds of questions in modern halakhic literature. He's really quite emphatic about the way that suffering is something that you're simply not allowed to sustain, even though the person's, you're extending the person's life and you may be saving somebody else's life in the process. You're not allowed to extend somebody's suffering for the value of life. Okay, questions, comments before we do one, one or maybe two more sources? So, yeah. So you're saying that he assumes suffering even in in cases where somebody obviously can't say that they are in pain. Yeah, and, and now of course this is an issue that we'll talk about not not extensively, but briefly uh, in, in 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 our next discussion um, when we talk about um, when we talk about uh, decision making for somebody who who may not be competent to make a decision, somebody who's comatose, somebody who can't articulate their needs. Um, but, but yes, he, he says that you have to, uh, have to assume, uh, that, that the person could be suffering and if they can't articulate it, you can't assume that they're not suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, we're, we're going to see Ramesha Feinstein again in a minute, but I just, the last, uh, the, I want to just make sure to get this in, uh, before, before we finish that we only have two sources to see next time. Um, the Minchat Shlomo by Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach. Uh, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach was roughly contemporary with Rav Moshe Feinstein. He lived in Israel, Moshe Feinstein lived uh, in Russia and then in the United States. Um, he's considered to be the preeminent halachic authority in Israel uh, in the mid to late 20th century. Um, and again, somebody whose who's halachic uh, authority was respected across uh, Israeli society. He was uh, himself uh, identified as ultra-Orthodox. Nonetheless, he was considered to be uh, an important posseg for all sorts of questions about halachic observance in the army, even though again, uh, ultra-Orthodox don't go to the army. Um, he, he, he created a sense of 
a, a, a certain halachic norm that, that runs the gamut of Israeli society. For example, uh, he ruled that, uh, that, that all of Jerusalem, not only the old city of Jerusalem, but all of Jerusalem celebrates the second uh, day of Purim, Shushan Purim, uh, and that's how it became the norm, uh, even though, of course, Jerusalem is now a sprawling city uh, far beyond the walls of, uh, of, of, the, of the traditional old city. Um, I was actually at his funeral uh, when he died in 1995, uh, and, and 400,000 people packed the streets of Jerusalem. It was, it was a remarkable, remarkable sight. Um, he says as follows on this issue. Um, Many people are uncertain about the issue of treating a gosses. Um, there are those who rule that one must violate Shabbat to save even a moment of life, just as one must violate even a moment to save one's life, i.e. to extend the life of somebody who will certainly die. So too, one must force a dying patient to accept treatments. He is not master over his own life, such that he has the right to forfeit even one moment. Okay, so here's the question that we're going to be addressing more explicitly next time, which is, let's say the patient does have uh, agency. Can the person can articulate their, their needs or their wants or the, 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 the course of treatment that they want. To what extent must you accede to their wishes? That's going to be the issue that we get into more next time. So he says, well, there are those people who say you completely ignore them. You do whatever you can to keep them alive and you completely override uh, their, their wishes. Why? Why shouldn't the patient get to decide what he or she wants? Person is not master over his own life. Again, a point that we'll leave for longer discussion next time. The assumption in Judaism is not that you have uh, full license to live or die as you wish. Your life is given to you by God, and therefore you have a responsibility to protect it and a responsibility to sustain it. And therefore we should do whatever, uh, whatever it takes to sustain your life, even overriding the patient's wishes. But it seems to me, he says, that if the patient is experiencing severe pains and afflictions or even intense psychological pain, here comes mental anguish, not just physical pain, then one must provide him with food and oxygen even against his will. But one may withhold the medications that are causing the patient pain by prolonging his life if he so desires. So here, the point is made explicitly. And again, we'll see this in uh, Ramosha Feinstein next week as well where he distinguishes between two different kinds of treatment and puts them on opposite sides of the line that we just drew before. Okay, let's go back to our whiteboard. He says as follows, what am I gonna put on the side of the line? What goes on the life side? What do I need to do to sustain somebody's life? Things that are natural. Any natural kind of treatment needs to be done in order to sustain somebody's life. And there, he says, we'll have to tweak this a little bit next week. He says, you even do it against the person's will. How much against the person's will? Again, discussion for next time. But he says, on the side of suffering, if they are suffering extensively, you do not have to provide and may withdraw what other kinds of treatment, anything artificial. Okay. In other words, he's taking the distinction, the natural artificial distinction that we made before and, and apportioning it to these two sides of the line. When it's a matter of providing natural treatment, you do whatever you have to do to sustain their life. However, if they're suffering, you do not provide and may withdraw artificial treatments. What's natural, what's artificial? What does he put in each category? So let's just list what he says and we'll discuss this more uh, in more detail next time. He says, natural, he says, what do you have to provide? 
food, liquids, and oxygen. Those he deems to be natural, natural treatments. Artificial, what does he say? Back in the text again. Medicine. <clears throat> medicine. Education. Okay. He says medicine is something that is artificial. That's not, a, a, it's something that we have imposed, that we've introduced, that's sustaining the person's life artificially, and therefore you may withdraw that. Okay. Let's leave the chart this way. And next time we will continue our discussion of, uh, of, of patient agency, what kinds of choices we allow them to make and what kinds of uh, priorities we allow the patient to set. And then we'll bring it all back to the issue of dignity and talk about how these three different elements, agency, life, and suffering, uh, help us create a sense of dignity within this particular halakhic question. Danny, I, I just wanted to ask, I'm sorry I couldn't come earlier. Um, is there an agreement about what constitutes food? Because- No, okay, so we're gonna talk about that next time. Um, we're gonna talk first of all about uh, different kinds of feeding, uh, both uh, intravenous or artificial and, uh, and manual feeding. Um, and, and also um, what, exactly constitutes, uh, what exactly constitutes nutrition? What's the goal of providing nutrition? Okay, Thanks. but we'll leave that for next time. <laughs> Thank you very much, and, uh, and I'll see you all next week. Thank you, Rabbi Reifman. This, uh, this was an interesting class, and I'm looking forward to the next one next week. And thank you also to everyone who uh, joined us today on Zoom, on uh, Drisha Live, and on Facebook. Uh, we continue our full program uh, this evening at 8 p.m. with the final session. Uh, this was extended uh, on imagining King David in the Babylonian Talmud with Rabbi David Silver. And as always, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information on our website as well as the registration links. It's uh, www.drisha.org classes. You can also watch live at uh, drisha.org live. Thank you again for the opportunity to learn with you, Rabbi Reichman. And thanks again to everyone who attended. We hope to see you soon at one of our other classes, Adrisha. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Take, Take care. care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.